Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and today I am joined by an old friend, a special guest, podcast toxicologist extraordinaire, Dr. Jerry Snow. Jerry's been on several times. We've talked about fentanyl. We've talked about carbon monoxide. We've talked about cyanide. We've got a new uh, talk subject today, but before we get into our subject, Jerry, reintroduce yourself to some of our new listeners. Tell them kind of who you are and what you do every day. Absolutely. Well, I'm, I'm Jerry Snow. I'm a board-certified emergency physician, medical toxicologist, and addiction medicine physician. Uh, I practice uh, full-time medical toxicology in Phoenix, Arizona. However, I still work a few shifts in the ED as well because I like to keep up that skill set as well. So, you know, I interact with uh, EMS still on a very regular basis and, and do a lot of outreach with EMS too on, on subjects such as what we're talking about today. So, obviously, I have an interest in substance use, um, drugs, and drug toxicity. And that's where medical toxicology and kind of addiction medicine are very, very intertwined. So this is this is a subject kind of near and dear to my heart. So lots of overlap here in all three of your jobs. Most most of us like me can can handle one job. Jerry's got three from working in the ED, just where all y'all listeners bring your patients. Jerry's a regular ED doc just like me, but also has a special interest in you know toxicology and overdose along with addiction medicine. So I got an email. Uh, from a medic uh, several weeks ago, and I've seen some news clips about xylazine. And honestly, I had seen xylazine here and there, knew that it was kind of a fentanyl adulterant. We've talked about fentanyl and other you know, synth- synthetic opiates on the podcast here before, but this one kind of hit the news over in Austin. And so thanks to Medic Question, thanks to some, some current events, I wanted to bring an expert on and talk about xylazine, what it is, how we can think about it in terms of our overdose patients in the EMS setting. So before we go too far down the line, Jerry, tell the listeners about xylazine a little bit historically where it's been seen across the states and sort of why it's mixed into fentanyl and kind of what some of the some of the things we're going to see with it. Sure. So simply stated, you know, xylazine is a non-opioid veterinary sedative. It's not even a controlled substance. Um, more specifically, it's a centrally acting alpha-2 agonist. So it's similar in its mechanism of action to medications you've heard of before, like clonidine or dexamethamine, which is used widely in the ICU for um, sedation. So interestingly, xylazine, it's been around for decades, actually many, many decades. It was first synthesized by Bayer back in 1962. So it's been used for very broadly in the veterinary practice for a long, long time. And while I understand it's new on the scene there in Texas, it's been described in the opioid supply and is actually a substance used um, even by itself in Puerto Rico going back over over 20 years. So that's where you see a lot of the first medical literature and reports coming out about it not only being an adulterant, but people also specifically using it um, in, in the, by itself um, um, in Puerto Rico. So in addition, other regions in the U.S., for example, Philadelphia, have been finding xylazine in, the, in their drug supply for greater than a decade as well. So it, it's been around, um, and this is well reported in the medical literature, as well as um, even reports like field reports from the DEA. However, the, over the last several years, we've seen a steady growth in xylazine as an adulterant in the drug supply across the country. And it's finally even reached here in Phoenix um, as well. 
And uh, we've got confirmatory testing on, on several of our patients that we've cared for here, here where that's been present. There's a little bit of um, debate sometimes of like why, you know, xylazine is added um, as an adulterant um, when you actually, they, people have actually went out and done these studies and, and published them where they went out and they talked specifically to people um, that inject um, drugs. And when you talk to those people, you know, fentanyl, they say it doesn't have much legs, meaning it doesn't have a very long duration of action. Um, so people have often report like having a sedative like xylazine to increase the euphoria and the duration of the effect. They kind of get that heroin nod that you really don't get with fentanyl with its quick onset. It's very potent, but um, as you're aware, it wears off significantly faster than what, what heroin does. So there's a ton of good stuff in there. You know, when I started clicking around and doing a little more research than, oh, it's another adulterant, you know, one of the links that you shared with me that I shared with you that we kind of passed back and forth and both found was from Maryland, the state of Maryland. So they had they had seen this uh, several years ago there. So probably started on the East Coast, like like a lot of things in the in the drug world and move west. Just for the listeners, just a reminder, it's an alpha agonist. We see alpha agonists in clonidine. We've talked about clonidine on here before and and the sedative um, blood pressure effects that you get with get with clonidine. Some of y'all, if you're in the transport uh, EMS world and you're taking critically ill patients and flying them from, from hospital to hospital, you've probably had a patient on a dexmedetomidine drip, very commonly used sedative now in a lot of ICUs uh, across America. So... If you add a sedative to an, another opiate, you're you're basically hitting the patient with a double whammy. To know that it's veterinary and primary use and not scheduled, it probably makes it a relatively inexp inexpensive option as an adulterant as well. So back to our patients, Jerry. If if a patient overdoses on straight fentanyl or overdoses on fentanyl mixed with xylazine, do we see any differences clinically? I mean, length of action and those sort of things aside, from a basic on the street, see the patient, hypoventilating, decreased mental status, decreased O2 sats, the, you know, increased entitled CO2, the normal stuff. Do we see any differences there? Yeah, well, this, this especially initially on your first assessment with the patient, this is going to be a pretty tough call because, as you already mentioned, they both cause CNS and respiratory depression. You can see, you know, the small pupils, the meiosis, hypotension, and bradycardia. You know, as I probably failed to mention earlier, xylazine is not approved um, for human use. There were a few pilot studies, but due to the significant hypotension as well as bradycardia, it was abandoned. So they've never used it um, medically in humans at all. Um, so one might anticipate that you could see more significant bradycardia and hypotension. I think that one thing that jumps out is a patient would be more likely to respond to naloxone if it was solely, you know, just an opioid on, on board. So, you know, when patients where you have these, and obviously it's going to depend on dose too, like the degree of how much fentanyl is there, the degree of how much xylazine is there, but these patients may not respond to naloxone is what they may look very opioid toxidrome, but then when you give them the naloxone, maybe they don't, maybe they respond a little bit. Maybe they, maybe, maybe the respiration rate goes up. Maybe their heart rate or um, blood pressure does increase a little bit, but they don't have that. Uh, the normal effect to the degree that you would anticipate. So that you, you brought naloxone into the discussion and that really was where I wanted to go with the next question. So I'll give you a two-parter and I don't want anybody to misunderstand the question here. So 
probably expound a little bit, but what about high dose naloxone in alpha agonists? I mean, this is a this is one that is discussed sometimes, you know, in the ED world with straight clonidine overdoses, especially in kids, kids that are on, you know, potentially uh, guanfacine for uh, ADHD, another alpha agonist that you may see out there. Is is there any data for high dose naloxone in alpha agonist overdose? So if you suspected this, is there use in giving six, eight, ten milligrams and on the flip side of that, from your practice experience and seeing these patients in the ED, is there a downside to high-dose naloxone uh, from a treatment perspective? Yeah, well, that, well, that's a great question. So, so first off, unfortunately, there's a real lack of data on this topic within the medical literature when you're looking specifically at the use of high-dose naloxone and xylazine. I did another literature search just in the last week to make sure I wasn't missing something here, but what we have as far as data goes is there's several case reports of xylazine toxicity. Um, and this is a combination. Some studies have like done a review and compiled all the different case reports. And within some of these case reports, you there are cases where with xylazine toxicity, naloxone was administered, but in all these reports, it didn't have much clinical effect. No randomized studies, no prospective studies, just case reports and reporting whether somebody responded to it or not. Now, when you look at naloxone and alpha-2 agonists, it really goes back all the way to at least the early 1980s, and it's mainly focused on clonidine. And these studies were, you know, mainly consist of small retrospective studies looking at clonidine toxicity and naloxone, as you mentioned. There's, when it comes to this topic, there's always been some controversy surrounding it kind of from the start. Some of these studies showed potential benefit, while others reported failure or no response. Now, keep in mind, many of these patients, and they were included in these studies, they're children and they're opioid naive. Um, I have been kind of underwhelmed um, with what these studies have, have demonstrated, especially on their level of evidence. And, you know, in my clinical experience, the vast majority of these patients do quite well just with supportive care. Um, I would like to mention that while there's no approved antidote in humans, there are a couple vet, there are within the veterinary literature and practice. For example, Yohimbine is an alpha-2 antagonist. It's used in animals um, for reversal of alpha-2 agonists, specifically like xylazine. And then another alpha-2 agonist, um, atipomazole, is used for the reversal of dexamethamidine um, sedation um, by vets as well. However, neither one of those medications or drugs are approved for use in, in humans at all. All right, which brings us to the second part of the question. And that, you know, the elephant in the room for this patient population is really precipitated opioid withdrawal. So remember, most of these patients are chronic opioid users and are going to have withdrawal if naloxone is administered to them, especially when you're talking about high doses. So when you're giving these patients large doses of naloxone, the intensity and severity of the withdrawal symptoms is definitely going to be worse. So that would be kind of my concern. So to kind of summarize that, we don't have any you know, good literature to demonstrate that a patient would respond to high dose naloxone specifically for xylazine. However, in a mixed picture where you have the opioid toxidrome, possibly fentanyl with xylazine, you know, the patient, you may get a partial response. But I, you know, if I had, for instance, I have actually taken care of a straight known xylazine overdose, and that is not a patient that I gave high dose naloxone to. So that I'll put my soapbox alert out there and just climb up for a second and 
stand on the soapbox with my EMS medical director hat on and just say that realistically these patients should be cared for the exact same way with the same supportive measures with or without naloxone. I'm not taking naloxone off the trucks or I'm not going to go to Dr. Dixon's office and create a ruckus this afternoon and, and try to change our, our protocols by any means. But if you have a hypoventilatory altered pinpoint pupil patient, that's an opioid, opioid toxidrome, whether it's fentanyl, heroin, um, xylazine, plus or minus, we need to treat those the same way with the same supportive measures. So our resuscitation should look the same. We should get the BVM on this patient as quickly as possible, crank the oxygen up. If we need to add PEEP, we can add PEEP. If they're hypotensive, we need to get quick access and think about fluids and, and vasopressors. If they're bradycardic and they need, you know, some, some uh, you know, presser push, then maybe they need epinephrine. Maybe they need, you know, pacing. We should do all the same safety net things that we would normally do and not divert our attention away thinking about potentially ancillary type things like, well, maybe eight milligrams of naloxone will be our key here. And in that time period, when we're fumbling with trying to find eight milligrams of naloxone, which is usually not easy because you're looking on a supervisor truck or a district chief truck or a, another truck, or you know, you're going to back to the cart, you're not doing good chin lift jaw thrust. You're not putting your nasal trumpets in. You're not, you know, bagging appropriately. So I, I feel like personally here at MCHD, speaking to the MCHD listeners, our resuscitation should look the same regardless of, of xylazine or not. That doesn't mean it's not important for us to know about and to recognize and at least think about, but realistically, supportive care, good supportive care, and I've tried to eliminate the term basic from my vocabulary and talk about more foundational life support, that good, good bag, good oxygen, good positioning, and those sort of things are the way that we get these patients through it. And six, eight, 10 milligrams of Narcan, maybe that comes into play once the patient arrives to the emergency department, potentially under the direction of a tox toxicologist like Dr. Snow, uh, who may you know, feel differently about sort of a a topic that has not a clear evidence-based answer, that, that can happen at, at minute 30 or minute 45. But for us on arrival in the truck, it should look the same with or without uh, xylazine in our brain, with or without the thought of high dose, high dose naloxone in our brain, because once we get distracted with that, then we're not thinking about the foundational things. And realistically, the move in emergency medicine as a whole has shifted over you know, the 15 or 20 years that you and I have been doing this, Jerry, I, I think you can speak for yourself, but, uh, you know, I remember being kind of taught that you want to give a big, big slug of naloxone up front to know yes or no. And that's, like you said, that can precipitate some pretty heinous withdrawal, which is not really kind to our patients. They can become, you know, quite disoriented and quite uncomfortable from that. That's not really a, uh, a decent thing to do from my standpoint, because our goal was not necessarily to identify any one thing or the other it's to support them through you know their medical crisis so the tact now has definitely moved from what i've seen and what i can tell from you know educational bits and and teaching now is you know you want to use as little naloxone as possible to precipitate respiratory drive improvement to precipitate you know oxygenation improvement when coupled with good resuscitation so the idea of slamming four milligrams of naloxone up front just to see 
is a little bit of a dinosaur. So I don't do that in my practice anymore. I, I start with much smaller aliquots and, and move forward as the patient uh, improves or doesn't improve and let, and let that be my guide. Speak to that a little bit for the listeners. Yeah, I mean, I, I agree with everything that you just said, Casey. You know, in, in patients presenting with the opioid toxidrome, you know, small pupils, CNS, respiratory depression, I think it's completely reasonable to follow your local protocols and administer naloxone. But just as you mentioned, it's, it's just as important, if not more important, to not forget about your bad valve mask, to oxygenate and ventilate the patient if necessary. I agree with you. You don't want to get distracted. You don't want to assume that the patient's going to respond and start to, you know, breathe better without those interventions, all that which you mentioned, you know, um, you know, and the biggest thing you might see if you're dealing with the presence of xylene or not is just how much of a response you may see. And it may be less than what you expect, especially if it's present there. And I absolutely agree. If you look at most of the education material out there, whether it's for EMS or, you know, physicians in their emergency department, um, I think there's definitely been a shift with trying to use the lowest effective dose to, you know, ensure adequate oxygenation and ventilation versus getting somebody, you know, awake, alert, and in withdrawal. You know, we don't want these patients agitated. We don't want these patients, you know, leaving without treatment or signing out AMA when that may not be a very good idea for them. So, I mean, I completely agree. I mean, there was, you know, a long time ago, it seemed like everybody gave two milligrams naloxone IV. I mean, as a starting dose all the time. Now you see doses 0 0.04, 0 0.4, you know, many times fold smaller than that. So I think there's definitely been a shift there. I know I've tried to make that my practice as well. And, you know, I encourage others to do the same because it's definitely, as you mentioned, a, you know, a safer and more gentle <laughs> and kind um, approach to things, especially in these people that are opioid dependent. And then lastly, you know, from a, from a medic standpoint, and you're dealing with an entirely undifferentiated patient here. Got to remember that our ultra mental status serial killers that we we teach here at MCHD has a list of other things that can exist here. We need to make sure we get a blood sugar and it's not endocrine. We need to make sure that we're looking for and thinking about potential infectious causes. Is there a, you know, do you see a big abscess? Is there a, a tachycardia and a fever? You know, is there an infection that could be, you know, potentially contributing do you have stroke signs or seizure signs? Is there a reason to suspect, to suspect either of those? And, and trauma is always lurking on the outskirts for these patients. Did they fall downstairs? Did, were they struck by a car? Were they hit in the head with a lead pipe? All those things are, should always be on your differential. As soon as you pigeonhole your patient into a single differential diagnosis, then you've got to be 100% right or you're going to be 100% wrong, one or the other. So we want to make sure that we're keeping an open mind getting our blood sugar, getting our full set of vitals, getting a 12 lead if it's indicated and making sure that we're uh, casting a wide net for these folks and thinking about the alter mental status killers and not just, hey, this is an overdose. It may be that and we may end up there, but we have to make sure that we check all the boxes and collect all of our objective information that's necessary in these folks because generally they're pretty darn sick. So a 12 lead, a glucose, full set of vital signs, you know, in title, those are those are necessary things, even if it is fentanyl, even if it's even if it is fentanyl plus xylazine. And I guess that brings me sort of to the last question, and we'll wrap it up. Uh, Jerry, is there any risk for medics encountering encountering xylazine? I know we fought the the fentanyl mythbusters here, and it's been kind of rampant again this last couple weeks with some 
you know, law enforcement officers and uh, first responders, fire folks having, you know, the ubiquitous nausea and dizziness from encountering fentanyl in a truck. We all know that that's not how folks overdose. If that was the case, our anesthesiologists and nurses in the ED would be overdosing daily, encountering the fentanyl that they use in the hospital. Uh, but that said, from from just an inhalational, uh, you know, dermal absorption standpoint, anything out there on xylazine being any more dangerous or less dangerous than the normal stuff that our folks come into contact with every day? Sure. So the so the short answer here, when it comes to safety and, and first responders and EMS, is likely no. When you look at the available medical literature on human exposures, the vast majority are acute ingestions or injections of xylazine. All right. You, you can also find some case reports of intentional nasal insufflation where people have like purposely, you know, dried this out and then snorted it. And obviously all those routes can definitely result in toxicity. You know, interestingly, if you look at the material safety data sheet on xylazine, they do list dermal exposure as a possibility. However, I have never seen myself or heard of a reported case of toxicity from dermal exposure. Um, furthermore, there was actually a pa paper published in the Journal of Emergency Medicine back in 2016 titled, Xylazine Exposures Reported in Texas Poison Centers, which is kind of interesting. So this is prior to, you know, several years prior to you guys dealing with this being present in fentanyl. But xylazine was still being used pretty broadly, um, especially in veterinary practice um, uh, throughout Texas. And a lot of these patients um, had that were the xylazine exposures that were reported, um, probably half of them or so were, were intentional exposures. So between the years of 2000 to 2014, there were a total of 76 cases. Over 50% of these exposures actually occurred by injection. Um, and a good portion of these obviously were unintentional, were vets or um, other folks were trying to administer this to animals and actually even stuck themselves one way or the other. And not surprisingly, most of them presented with drowsiness, bradycardia, and a very small amount of them actually did develop some hypotension, but most of the vast majority of them did very well unless it was a self-administered attempt at harm. So patients that inject themselves uh, on purpose trying to cause, you know, in, in a suicide attempt, those patients tend to have a more serious major reaction or could even possibly lead to death. But at the time of publication, interestingly enough, which was, as I mentioned, looking at the years from 2000 to 2014, there were no cases of opioids being adulterated. There were a couple cases of cocaine actually being adulterated with xylazine even back then. So prior to a lot of the folks um, hearing about it um, previously, but obviously, a lot of things have changed since that paper came out as well. And we know that, as I mentioned earlier, xylazine is present in adulterate across the country now. So currently, I am not aware of any confirmed cases of toxicity in EMS or first responders to date. So at this point, it's going to be similar to fentanyl. You know, use common sense. Don't inject it. Don't get it in your eyes or mucous membranes. And you shouldn't have much to worry about. So if you get any of these unknown substances, you know, you come in contact with them, you know, soap and water, wash it off your skin. You know, if you would happen to get anything into your eyes or mucous membranes, you're going to want to flush, um, you know, to decontaminate. But for the most part, unless you come in contact with your mucous membranes or somehow it gets injected, you shouldn't have anything to worry about. And sometimes I listen to people talk about this, and this is obviously something that a lot of toxicologists, including yourself out there, feel really strongly about little bit of misinformation and probably some some hysteria that's involved with this discussion if you had a bucket of fentanyl and you stuck your hands into that bucket and you didn't take them out eventually you would have dermal absorption I mean, the, the idea that dermal absorption can't happen that, that's not really what we're saying here it's just that if you're in your normal work mode 
and you have gloves on, or even if you don't have a gloves on, and you come into contact with it or think you do, and you wash it off, the sheer dose versus time and time of absorption is not going to allow you to become obtunded and GCS of three with pinpoint pupils and a respiratory rate of four. If you had the bucket of fentanyl and you and you were at the beach and you poured your drink and you stuck your hands into the bucket and you left it there for an hour, then yeah, I guess you could have eventually uptake enough to cause some problems, but that's never going to happen in the real world. So goes back to Jerry's two, two words that are easy to say and unfortunately sometimes in short supply out there and that's common sense and just use common sense use your good ppe you know be careful but there's no reason to be more concerned about xylazine fentanyl than you would be about any of the other stuff that we've been coming into contact as long as we've been doing this job and i guess bottom line i'm going to leave you with one question jerry because I, I think i know the answer but will we ever know if we see a xylazine fentanyl adulterated overdose or is it going to look pretty much the same as the rest of our overdoses. Yeah, Casey, I, I think it's reasonable to suspect the presence of xylazine in patients with the opioid toxidome that don't respond to the naloxone. But you already brought up this point once before, and I want to stress it again that there are many reasons a patient might not respond to the naloxone. One very important one that you mentioned was hypoglycemia, hypercapnia, you know, traumatic brain injury, anoxic brain injury, other adulterants, adulterants such as benzodiazepines, for instance. So again, it's gonna be really important that you support ventilation and oxygenation. That's really gonna be the cornerstone of treating these patients. And honestly, to, to truly know whether you're dealing with xylazine or not, you really need confirmatory testing from the patient or you know, a sample of the drug itself. And you know, I'm very lucky because I actually work, um, you know, my main shop here, we have access to this type of testing. So we can send urinal patients and know within a few hours whether it's present or not. And as I mentioned, we've had many patients in the last year to two years that have been xylazine positive as well as fentanyl positive because we have our own screen for that and we can pick that up on confirmatory testing as well. That's the only way you're gonna be certain. Again, I can't stress to you enough though, as you mentioned, you know, recognizing opioid toxidrome, you know, maybe they respond to naloxone, maybe they don't. You've really got to not focus just on that being the cause because there's so many other things that could be going on and you want to make sure you're doing everything you can to support that patient. That's a perfect spot for us to wrap up. As always, if you have questions or ideas for future podcasts, please send us an email, podcast at mchd-px.org. Please leave us a like, review wherever you listen. Jerry, as always, for joining us with your toxicologic knowledge. We appreciate it. And... We will talk to everyone again soon. Have a great rest of your day. Thanks. This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod, Incompetech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.